So, a traditional Jewish, Christian, and Muslim. Atheist and agnostic as well as many times. Welcome back, everyone. My name is Katie. I'm Preston. And you're listening to the, the Holy Watermelon, Watermelon Podcast. Podcast. All right. So we've enjoyed a nice little run through the Abrahamic faiths, that some people like to call the Western traditions. And now we're going to deal into a little bit of the the river folk and the Aryans. We're going to look at the, the Vedic religion. <laughs> also known as Hinduism. So do you want to explain the name a little bit better? Because <laughs> I right. think you've shocked our listeners. What? Shock? No. <laughs> no, me? <laughs> Never. All right. So Hinduism is, in my opinion, an incredibly lazy name for a religion. <laughs> as far as I can tell, it is a name imposed on a culture from outsiders. Almost in the same way that Christian was a name used to persecute Christian Jews in the early first century of the Christian era. And then they took their power back. Yeah, they adopted the name themselves and made it their own. Hinduism is kind of like that, that European anthropologists are like, those people are Hindus based on where they lived which was called by Europeans, India, named for the Indus River, which, like the Mississippi River, is a tautology. It's basically big river river. Tautology meaning a thing that is a name repeated. Oh, like chai tea. Like chai tea or, or the Gobi Desert or, he, or the uh, Sahara Desert. Or jugo juice is actually pronounced... What, you go in Spanish and it's juice juice? Yeah. Do you say jugo juice? Well, I think most Canadians say jugo juice because we don't speak Spanish. I always thought it was jugo juice for English-speaking folks. Oh, okay. But, yeah, it's... But, yeah, that's not the, <laughs> how you say it in Spanish or English, apparently. But it means juice juice. Yeah. So, these people in the area of the Indus River who have this name forced upon them of Indians <laughs> that's basically just calling them river folk <laughs> which is kind of nifty that uh, rivers are actually hugely important in that in their religious culture and especially the Ganges River so calling them river folk though is odd <laughs> isn't wildly inappropriate <laughs> okay uh, of course India to Indians is called Bharat, not India. Kind of like Germany. If you talk to a German, they know their country's not called Germany. It's just other people are like, no, you're Germany. <laughs> that well, was a Roman thing. <laughs> well, thank you for explaining why you titled this episode <laughs> the way you titled it. So, some What about the Aryans? Uh, okay, tell me about the Aryans, the white folk. So another big problem I have with the whole uh, East-West divide that we talked right, about a few yeah. episodes, Hinduism, if there's any truth to their own story that it, the Vedic religion was brought to the Indian region by the Aryans, these are lighter-skinned folk from north and west of India. So mm -hmm. 
European or at the very least Mediterranean Middle East-ish, but the paler folk, not the dark folk native to the Indian subcontinent. Okay. So, of course, these this name Aryan has brought with it some baggage thanks to the people who brought you the Second World War. <laughs> <laughs> but that was the, the name that we have for that ancient people. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thanks for clearing that up. <laughs> so let's take a look at what Hinduism actually is. Do we want to go over some fast facts? Yeah, let's do it. What do you got? Well, it's the largest of the air quotes Eastern religions. <laughs> it has over 1 billion practitioners, subscribers, followers. And it's the world's oldest, I would say world's oldest active religion. L- oldest continuous. It's changed its forms, but so is every other religion that claims any sort of age as well. So seems as valid to me as any. The basis of Hinduism is that there is one supreme, unchanging being or God, the Brahman. He is limitless, genderless, although I just said he, Brahman, is limitless, genderless. I think a lot of people do default to the masculine thing there. It's a habit of our language. Yeah. I don't like it. (laughs) And... So everything in the world is Brahman, and he just, they just take different forms. It's like the force. Yeah. It permeates every living thing. Yeah, actually, that's a really good way to explain it. Uh, (laughs) For those Star Wars nerds. Right, and we'll break down into more on what and who Brahman appears as, but that is the, the common thread. That everything is Brahman and Brahman is everything. So it's kind of, we talked about it previously being pretty, what's the word I'm looking for? Polytheistic. Mm -hmm. But there's definitely facets of it that look henotheistic, but really deep in its core, it is pantheistic, where God is everywhere and everything is part of God. Including you and me. Absolutely. And this dog on my lap. So theological models get really tricky, especially in this particular situation. Do you just want to quickly digress and explain the difference between poly, pan, and heno? I know we've touched on it all before, but let's just give everyone, including me, a refresher. All right. So let's start with the familiar idea of monotheism. There's one god. He's responsible for everything. Or she, in some cases, lots of people believe in a single goddess, and that's it. And mono is the one god. There's no side gods, usually. (laughs) Christianity. (coughs) Then pantheism. No, that's not where I wanted to go next. Polytheism is the idea that there are many gods. Usually they're placed on an equal footing, but sometimes there's... Actually, in most cases, there's a whole bunch of gods uh, on an equal level with one or two... I don't think ever more than three gods who are slightly above those. Would a good example of this be the Greek pantheon? That's immediately what I think of. The Greek pantheon is a good example where you got three brothers who are kind of the tops and then all of the other gods who are their sisters or their children 
who are associated with them, but definitely lower on that okay. totem pole. Totem pole is a bad example. Lower on that hierarchy. <laughs> and then henotheism is the idea that a nation and a community can have many different gods, and it's okay for you to worship one god that's different than mine, and I'll still accept that your worship is valid and is going to get you the same place my worship is going to get me. And then there's cathenotheism, which is the idea that you can that move one. between gods without any worry, which is actually kind of cool. Oh. Or sometimes gods will move within the hierarchy as well. Mm-hmm. And then Pan is, is what we're about to where everything is God and God is everything. Exactly. Cool. And usually you'll see expressions of that one name for God, like like Brahman. But there's also expressions of God or manifestations of that same God or avatars even sometimes. That's a word that comes up a fair bit in Hinduism. But it's all one God. And so the Vedic religion brought by the Aryans to the Indus region tells about this theological model and the Dravidian natives just... Well, I don't want to say they just accepted it. They were conquered, as most people who can who make massive conversions. What what are the texts for Hinduism? I know you looked into this a little bit. Thank you for that nice <laughs> segue. the The Hindu tradition has the Vedas, and there are four Vedas: the Rig Veda, the Sama Veda, the Yajur Veda. And the Athar, Atharva, Atharva Veda. Cool. Are there words for those that people who stumble across those syllables can call them instead? I mean, <laughs> yes. <laughs> the Rig Veda is the praises. The Sama Veda is the songs. The Yajur Veda is worship. And the Atharva Veda, what you got at that time, is procedures. Cool. The Vedas, just like in the Abrahamic religion, are all believed to be divinely inspired and they are written as epics fantastic my understanding is that they are very very long some of them are short but they definitely build up to be long poems pretty pretty well have you read any of them i know we read parts of the bhagavad gita okay for school but it's been a while cool i have a a little book on my shelf that's it's actually a collection of snippets of scripture from a whole bunch of religions. Nice. Irritatingly enough, it's got pretty much the whole New Testament in it. Mm. And then itty bitty selections of other religions. Somebody had a favorite. In my research, <laughs> I found some like very B-rated movies of the Vedas. Oh, and yeah. I kind of want to sit down and watch them with you. And they show all the epics. And Bollywood is... I mean, hugely successful there's yeah. a lot of money there oh totally i think um, they should redo the veda stories if all of them i mean having done no research i bet you somebody's actually oh. been working on it recently oh i don't know about recently but i saw some live action it was pretty spectacular so <laughs> excellent yeah all right so the met the most well-known of the scriptures in hinduism is the bhagavad-gita as you had said before, so easily compared to your use of the other titles. So one of the most well-known pieces of Hindu writing is the Bhagavad Gita. I was saying it so well earlier. Bhagavad Gita. 
and it teaches you how to live your best life. It is part of a larger epic poem, the largest, the lo- largest poem ever written, the longest poem supposedly ever written. Large is irrelevant. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, There's also the Upanishads. Uh, They exist to explain the Vedas, similar to the Jewish Talmud, where you've got the sages or the rabbis. You've got the gurus who go and explain it. I don't know if guru is really the right word. I know that's a word more used with Sikhs, but I feel like that's still totally a a Hindu-used word. We're just killing it right now. Yeah, we're Uh killing it. Yes, and they so they would expand upon the Vedas and explain them, and mm-hmm. and it's become this larger piece of religious text. All right, so of course the Rig Veda, as we mentioned before, it it's one of the most important books of knowledge. It's also significantly older than any of the Western religious texts. It predates even the oldest part of the Hebrew Bible by more than a thousand years, which is pretty impressive that we have writings that far back that uh, we know how old they are. What do Hindus actually believe? What what comes of all these books? That's a really big question, <laughs> No kidding. So, I mean, as we mentioned before, it all comes back to Brahman, who is the literally the shared soul of everything, which is kind of badass. Right? But what if I don't feel like I'm Brahmin? Wow. Lucky for you, Preston. (laughs) This is where you've talked about this in the past, so you're actually an expert on it, is that uh, Hinduism has been happy to absorb other gods and goddesses from other cultures and just, like, adapt them a bit and be like, cool, you're part of Brahmin too. Thanks for telling us about this side of Brahmin we didn't know. Right. Which is where they have this massive, like, hundreds. I think there's over 200 Hindu gods and goddesses. I've heard numbers bigger than that, so that's easy to believe. (laughs) We have, I'm going to swing back into that Christianity thing that we were talking about before, that the Jews had Jesus killed because he said he was God Mm. on more than one occasion. And that was really offensive in a strictly monotheistic society. In India, where there's already an accepted idea of multiple expressions and iterations and avatars of Brahman as a perfectly worshipable thing, worshipable thing, (laughs) Jesus saying, I am the son of God or I am God isn't a problem to them at all. They're like, sweet! (laughs) It's just like, oh, cool. cool, we'll add you to the list. Which is exactly what they did when Thomas traveled to India and said, hey, I got to tell you this story about Jesus of Nazareth. And they're like, great, we'll add him to the list. And you know, Thomas was like, oh, no, I fucked this up. This isn't how it's supposed to go. Oh, no, no. Plenty of people did fully adopt the Christian tradition he brought them. And definitely more were just like, okay, yeah, he's another avatar of Vishnu or whatever, and then went on with their lives without really changing anything. Add him to my fantasy football team. (laughs) Problem is, Jesus got those holes in his hands. He's aerodynamic, but his catching ability isn't great. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Mm. 
I'm like, what other things are like fantasy football, but not fantasy football at all? Dungeons and Dragons. Right. <laughs> but I don't know if you'd be that helpful in Dungeons and Dragons. I feel either. like if you're worried about your fantasy football team, you need a different set of gods. Preferably, actually, realistically, we've got some great gods in Hinduism who could be great at football. I like Ganesha, the elephant man. Did you know Ganesha is like the most popular of the Hindu gods? Do you know why? Yes. Because his head's got an elephant head. No. I mean, <laughs> do you know why he has an elephant head? I do remember hearing the story in school when we covered very, very briefly Hinduism that his head was cut off. Mom all freaked out. Dad's like, fine, I'll give you a head back. And decided not to give him his original head. Gave him an elephant head as a joke because he's a dick. (laughs) Uh, Yes, that is how Ganesha is an elephant. Um, But Ganesha is the most popular because he is the remover of obstacles. You know what? That's a pretty good reason to be popular. And I like that. I think I totally see where it's like, oh, I got this problem. Go to Ganesha. Ganesha, He's He's the one who deals with that. We're not going to go into all... All thousand of them. All thousand of them. (laughs) If you're listening to this and there's one you want to hear about that we don't cover, send us a message and we can do... We'll we'll group them together and do an episode on some other Hindu gods. But we have notes here on, I think, the five or six most popular, common, uh, widely worshipped in Hinduism because we could be here for decades if we explained it to everyone. <laughs> Ain't nobody got time for that. I mean, someone probably does. I mean, yeah, I do. <laughs> Let's be real. <laughs> so numer uno. Actually, well, <laughs> backtrack. Hinduism has its own trinity. Yeah. Called the Trimurti. <laughs> Why does that sound like somebody wanted to rip off somebody else's name, but make it uh, make it not obvious that they were copying their work? It's because if you know me at all, uh, Katie and any accent other than my Canadian accent is really bad. I, my French was horrible, my German was horrible, and my Sanskrit is horrible. So Trimurti, it is the Hindu trinity. It is made up of Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. And Vishnu and Shiva are, of course, part of Brahma. All of, well, no, there's Brahmin and then Brahma. Brahmin is the priestly case, caste. Isn't it? Yeah. Have I been saying it wrong the entire time? Maybe. I might have too, actually. Brahma is the god soul. So have we been wrong no, at all yet? No, but okay, we have good. to be cl- we have to clear. So Brahman is the universal force soul of everything. Brahma is a god. And then you can be How part... How much this do we need to cut? <laughs> no, I'm explaining it. None of this needs to be cut. Okay. And then you can be part of the Brahmin class cast. So there's Brahmin, you're Brahmin, I'm Brahmin, this dog is Brahmin. There's Brahma, who is an iteration of Brahman with Shiva and Vishnu. And then you can be a Brahman, which is the priestly caste. Got it? 
I'm yeah. there. Yeah, are you? Are I'm... you there? <laughs> poor people listening to us. Cool. Brahma. Numero uno in the Trimurti. <laughs> I just, part of me wants to just switch it to Trinity, but that would be inappropriate. I, I mean, I think it's bad enough that it gets called the Hindu Trinity. Right. Frequently, it's like the, the Old Testament versus but the Trinity Hebrew Bible. Is... The Christians don't have a monopoly on the word Trinity. If you have no, three things, like, that's a Trinity. But you're, when you say Hindu Trinity, it's because you're, it's like field hockey versus hockey. You're saying field hockey because people need to know it's different from the real hockey. Did you know there's underwater hockey? I'm not surprised. I didn't. I, but... I didn't know that until I accused my landlord of being a hockey player. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, but no, I play underwater hockey. Because apparently it hurts just a little bit less when you take the puck to the teeth, which is how I knew he was a hockey player. <laughs> so I will uh, I will say Trimurti, just like we try to say Hebrew Bible and not Old Testament. Yeah, I think that's appropriate. As much as I'm probably mispronouncing it, I hope it's a better effort than just saying Hindu Trini. Yes. Brahma, number one, Trimurti. <laughs> He's the creator of the Vedas. He's this the one who, I guess, gave the divine inspiration. He has four heads. One for each Veda. One for each direction. Season, whatever you want to make that four into. And a Veda came from each of his mouths. He is the god of creation. And in the Trimurti, one's creation, one's maintenance, and one is destruction. So the full circle of life i guess so he is the creator in the tree marty all right number two is vishnu he is the preserver sometimes also called a savior he has blue skin pretty common among hindu gods as well as egyptian gods and that's kind of nifty and usually described with four arms another great ad for your fantasy football team. Oh, yeah. He's a catcher and a thrower, one would hope. You can tackle. Right. Real well. Yeah. And, and he would be the preserver. Now I'm just imagining Machamp. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of want to make this fantasy football team. <laughs> Having lots of arms, I'm sure has a lot of symbolic meaning. But since I didn't grow up interpreting those symbols in my daily life all i can imagine is the idea of preserving power that he is mighty to save as they often say about jesus shiva is the third in the trimurti shiva is the destroyer that completes this cycle he is portrayed with a serpent around his neck and his and a third eye that if it opens and it's looking at you you will be destroyed Matt, see, a third eye sounds to me like just the capacity to see more. And, I mean, maybe that's part of the deal. But now I'm thinking Cyclops from the X-Men who just destroys stuff yeah. with his laser eyes. It's, it's Shiva. Oh, I'm curious how popular the X-Men are in India. I wonder. If you're in India listening to our podcast, and I hope that one day our podcast is that popular, I would love to hear from you. I think you should tackle Krishna. Krishna. Because I think he's quite interesting. He is There's kind a of lot interesting. Of notes on him. Uh, so, one of the big celebrations attached to him is, of course, his birth. He did live a mortal life. He's one of the avatars of Vishnu. 
And so a lot of people like to compare him to Jesus being son of God, come down mortal. And so he's a very compassionate figure, much like Jesus is usually represented to be. Unless, of course, your favorite story of Jesus is smashing tables in the temple. Not a great parallel. <laughs> I'm sure there's a temple smashing god in Hinduism. Oh, I feel very if confident there Shiva, is. it's not Shiva, it's someone else. <laughs> uh, so he's usually depicted, or at least very often depicted, as a child figure. Like baby Jesus, often at Christmas time. People like to forget that Jesus was an adult in December for some reason. (laughs) And so uh, he's also connected with the the sanctity of cows. That as a child, he drank from a cow directly. And that's part of why cows are sacred in Hinduism, is that connection to that god. Which I thought was kind of nifty. There's a lot more about meat that we'll get into later as well. That herdsman, oh. herdsman. <laughs> <laughs> also, I didn't know what to put, so I put space home. <laughs> oh, we're gonna have to cut this too. Eh? I know, but if you talk, people can hear our joyous laughter. <laughs> I didn't know what to put for like heaven. Krishna, so I wrote space home. (laughs) Uh, Herdsman um, cow. Yeah. Krishna is also depicted as a herdsman, a divine herdsman even, much like the good shepherd of Christianity. Good old Jesus figure coming back again. And the herdsman ties back into the, the sanctity of cows in Hinduism. Absolutely. So... A lot of what we see in Jesus is very familiar in the figure of Krishna. And even his death has parallels to Jesus. Um, the place of his death is a pilgrimage site. And as we see often in Jerusalem, Krishna died by an accident rather than a deliberate mob that had him crucified. But that place is still sacred space. And there is forgiveness to his killer, much as we see familiar in Jesus. And, of course, like Jesus, he ascended back into the heavens. Space home. (laughs) Space home. (laughs) Which, of course, I just think like the Jetsons and a rocket ship when I say space home. Of course. That's not what I'm picturing. Those are are the big Those are the the five gods that we wanted to get into today before we get into the the more useful knowledge for those who aren't going to adopt the faith on how to recognize the beliefs and practices of your neighbors. So I mentioned about a thousand times now, (laughs) Brahmin, Brahma, Brahmins. You want to break down the Brahmins for us? I mean, the caste system. (laughs) I can do that for sure. So there's a caste system in Hinduism. And originally you were absolutely able to move between castes. Fun fact. That didn't last very long. No, though. it didn't. And it became this very hard line. You, you're you, born into you're it. You're born and into that's your where caste. You marry into your caste. It is starting to loosen up again. 
Now yeah. that there's enough people living in the digital age, yeah. those barriers are coming down. But absolutely, it wasn't. I I had a, a coworker, and he's Hindu, and he I think he married up, up, <laughs> air quotes. I don't. Oh, they, there's de- there's definitely oh, a linear. There is absolutely but, value uh, on these casts. <laughs> so he married up, um, and I think it was a little scandalous, but not super scandalous, and I. In, in my research, I saw that on dating sites, you could say, you know, caste doesn't matter if you're in India and dating. That's um, convenient. Yeah. So in the past, we're like way past. Didn't matter. You can move between based off of what you were good at. Mm-hmm. And then it became this hard line. You were born into your caste and you didn't move from your caste. So there are four primary castes. Of course, each group is subdivided into more subcasts that... If you look it up on Wikipedia, you'll find 200 different cast groups. Um, some reports will give you numbers as high as 2,000 different casts. Too many. It's you got to organize your people, I guess, <laughs> and they've I decided mean, this is the way to do it. I mean, India has a lot of people. I was gonna be like, there's not even 2,000 people in India, which is <laughs> even a little bit true. Yeah, right. <laughs> One of the more densely populated yes, nations. <laughs> so the top cast. I always wanted to say cased because that's the way it's spelt. In fact, a little piece of me is still convinced it should be pronounced cased in English. It comes from the Portuguese word casta. So cast is kind of the way we've got the word. like Canadian niche versus American niche. I'll just... If I hear somebody say niche, I want to hit them <laughs> because even though I accept that mispronunciation <laughs> of words come from the practice of reading, if you learn a word by reading, that's cool. But also, you need to put yourself in situations where you're going to learn words by hearing people say them. <laughs> so do our 30% of American listeners. We're sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not super violent, but I, the I desire gonna, does <laughs> come to mind I from gonna, time to time. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, I'm not super sorry, because <laughs> I apologize. And you're like, no, I'm not sorry. I meant what I said. <laughs> Like when I hear somebody say schedule, Ooh. I understand why you've done it, but in the morning, do you send your kids off to shul? <laughs> <laughs> the worst I ever heard, and I don't know, it came from North America, I just don't know where, wash instead of wash. Have so heard, um, I know in Boston, there's a lot of extra R's thrown onto words. And I've heard them also thrown into the middle of words in plenty of cases, too. I don't love it, but as long as I can understand you, we're going to be okay. you say Warsh, could you drop me a DM, please? I just need to know where you're from. Thank you. Back to the caste system. The top is? The top is the Brahmins. Uh, That's the priestly class. So that's how they ended up on top. If we get to say we're the voice of God... And we get to pick where we are on the totem pole. We're going to be the best of the best. But isn't everyone God? But that's I know. in practice, in day-to-day life, not I really know. important. I know. <laughs> I know. Uh, so that's your priestly class on top because you got to preserve your power. That's how that works. Then next on that list, who else has power? But can't tell the people who talk to God what to do. Your governors, your rulers, your warriors. Are you going to try this word, Preston? The word is kshatriya. Ooh, well done. 
Uh, some people might put a little more emphasis on that K. I find that difficult to pronounce, and I just want credit for trying. <laughs> I thought you did a good job. Thanks. A plus. It's like Cthulhu. There's, or Thulu. There's, you got options, and because the dude who invented the word is dead and gave more than one valid pronunciation before he died, we're going to do what we want. Fair. They're all hard to say when you put the wrong sounds together. (laughs) (laughs) When you put that many consonants together. And so those are your rulers, your warriors, the people who have a lot of social burden on them to take care of the people around them. They get a little credit. They get to be higher up than your regular middle class folks, but they're not the Brahmins who are supposed to be in a position where they can access uh, the divine message. The third caste is your common artisans, your working class. And the fancy word in Hindu or Sanskrit is Vaisya, is the way I read that. Vaisya? It could be Vaisya. It would help if I had more people in my social circle during a pandemic who could help me out with the pronunciation of these words. (laughs) We'll get an email. And then you have the sudras at the very bottom of this hierarchy, and they are basically untouchable. Like, you cannot share food or water with them. You cannot touch them. It's not okay. These are like... These would be like grave diggers, like people who would handle dead bodies or garbage or, you know. People who do the grossest things just to live because they don't get to be everybody else. So what I was saying before is like in the olden days, before these became hard lines, if you were were born into a family and your parents were sudras, but you showed aptitude at arms, you could move up and become a warrior. That's a big class jump going up past the Vaisyas. But before it was just based off your skill, what cast you were a part of. So if you could yeah. wield a sword, didn't matter. I'm sure people came down if you were very smart and couldn't do the priestly work, but you could I think you're absolutely right. leave a basket. They'd go, okay, sorry, bud. <laughs> That's your thing now. That's your thing now. And then it became this thing where you were born to a whatever family and that's what you stayed so yeah um, usually you'd stick to your family business but a lot of the time that didn't work out that's probably how the the firm the firmer lines began is i think you so just do what your papa did and then you which didn't. is fairly observable even in what white people like to call the better developed part of the world <laughs> <laughs> white people are annoying i say that as a white person I'm terrible, but I try not to be. And I think I should get some credit for that. I mean, we work hard. <laughs> right. So that's that's the caste system. It I don't it doesn't does it play a huge role in day-to-day practices and I don't think it comes up a lot because most of your interactions are gonna be within your caste. Yeah. Um and I didn't see any differences yeah. in, in what we're about to talk about. They definitely don't play a big difference in what you believe. No. They're fairly un well. There's a lot of diversity within Hinduism from house to house, but for the most part, the belief is 
pretty much the same all around. So we we bring up the caste system because it came from Hinduism and it's like Preston says, it's a way to structure people, whether it's good or bad. It's arguable. Very often for bad, but for bad. in recent history for sure. Useless. Yeah. So the big so how does we have all these gods? Yeah. With the caste system. We got way but too we, many people. <laughs> not not I'm not saying way too many Hindus. I mean just way too many people on this planet. Oh, absolutely. People suck. <laughs> <laughs> but we all belong to the Brahman, that overall, the all spirit. So how does this break down into the nitty gritty? We've got Brahman, we got gods, we have a caste system, but what do they, so we know they believe in Brahman, but that's just like saying Christians believe in God, but what do they believe about Brahman in the universe? Well, something that's hugely important is the Atman, which is your human soul that's like, I want to call it like a shard that's been separated from the whole. <gasps> like the dark crystal. Like the dark crystal, kind of maybe. Like the dark crystal. Does the dark crystal shatter and then come back together in the end? Only one piece falls off. Does it go back into the... Okay. Spoiler alert. I mean, the movie's <laughs> from the 80s, so... Right. I don't think it counts as a spoiler for a movie that's more than 30 years old. Okay. People who are concerned about it <laughs> have gone and watched it. Yes, it becomes whole. <laughs> Okay, so I think it's a fair comparison that the Atman is a part of that immortal all spirit that has become singularly self-identified. It's its own thing. It's separate, but still connected, but it is distinct. The goal, of course, is to have the Atman develop through a cycle of many lives, uh, the cycle called the Samsara. Where you you live and die, you live and die, you live and die. And ideally, you'd be moving up from a lower creation to a higher creation. That if you were in the cast of the untouchables your whole life, hopefully the next life you'd be in a higher you'd be born into a higher caste. This also includes not just humans. Absolutely. So the the soul is is immortal. It doesn't go anywhere. But we're not aiming to become to come back as dogs or slugs. No, that would be lower. Yes. Um, we definitely want to move upwards. That is the goal. Yes. The process of an Atman moving from body to body is called transmigration, which I think is pretty cool that there's right? a name for it. And so eventually the goal is that you would achieve moksha, which is a release from samsara, that you would just stop going through that cycle and be reunited with the Brahman and just live in peace and not have to worry about anything. Just be part of the universe. That sounds kind of nice. I mean, yeah. It's better than some stories where you have to spend eternity singing or farming. Singing would be bad. That, I mean. We've talked about your singing ability before. Yeah. I mean, I enjoy singing, but those around me, that would be my heaven and someone else's hell. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about karma. All right. Because we bastardize the shit out of the term karma here in the West. Yeah, we do. Oh, karma going to get you, Preston. 
Oh no, what a scary thought. Because you cut me off or instant karma, you know, you see. Mm -hmm. Oh, I follow our instant karma. There you go. There's some great stuff there. But that's not even a little bit true because karma is not instant. Right. It's a thing that builds up and comes around. Karma means action. Like I said, we bastardize it here. It is it is the consequences of your actions, but is on this massive scale that yeah. So whatever you you're mean to someone and then you blow out a tire, that's not karma. That's just probably coincidence or bad luck. Karma is what you did in one lifetime affecting your current lifetime or what you're doing in current lifetime affecting a later lifetime. It spans lifetimes and even like multiple like you can go multiple past lifetimes something you did four or five lifetimes ago can be affecting you now and you can be punished for something you did in a past life but not like not for cutting someone off in traffic today cutting somebody off in traffic is such a minor transgression like yeah it's rude but it's to say that's a thing that's going to affect you karmically two lifetimes from now seems extremely improbable. I mean, every time I've cut someone off, it's been absolutely an accident. I know. I mean, even today I was like, settle down, Rambo. Because <laughs> he was just so eager to get ahead of me. And I feel like there's a, I will be treated differently than he will be in a future lifetime. Because if he drives like all, like that all the time. If that behavior is a defining part of his character, then yes. there's other reasons why that's going to affect him karmically. Yes. Whereas me in an accidental cutting off in traffic, I'll be fine karmically. I think so. So karma is usually meant to be directed by an understanding of dharma, which is the principle of duty. Karma and dharma, they sound irritatingly alike. Like dharma and Greg? That's exactly where that name comes from. Really? So back in the I was being the sixties when that huge counterculture movement happened in yeah. North America, where everybody is just tired of their overbearing Christian parents and their pastors and even it's the government. <laughs> the counter there's a counterculture coming at us real hard. In the very near future, it's gonna be very obvious to everybody. There's there was a huge growth in the idea of alternate religious philosophies from all these people who grew up in their white Christian churches. They're like, no, I want wisdom from abroad. And India was the number one destination where people would go for that sort of guidance. So uh, we also saw a huge surge in witchcraft in North America at the same time. Um, Buddhism. Satanic panic. The satanic panic was about the same time as well. Yeah, it's and I, mean, I got didn't... way too excited to say <laughs> satanic panic. And so the name Dharma and Dharma and Greg is actually a feature of that obsession that came up fifty some years ago when the baby boomers were growing up and having kids. They did that. They. I mean, I guess Dharma from Dharma and Greg probably would be in our fifties and sixties now. Pushing it. That show's easily 15 years old. Yeah. And if she was 30 in the show, mm-hmm. see, pushing 50. So, yeah, that makes sense. That And definitely that the child out. of a boomer. Yeah, that checks out. Yeah. 
Yay, baby boomers. They made our philosophical and religious landscape in North America more interesting. Because it's not just migrants. We've got loads of people coming in from all over the world in North America. But the adoption of their religious traditions by white people has, I mean, it's undermined them a little bit, which is an annoying reality. But it's also helped people to be more familiar with them, which is not a bad thing. I want to digress so hard right now, but I'm what do you got? Well, this book I was telling you about that I finished the when God talked back, mm-hmm. and that's sort of the history of evangelicalism starts with people becoming more spiritual, looking to Eastern traditions, and then like coming back to the church, but the church adopting Eastern things, where you now have this personal relationship with God, like the Atman, mm-hmm. and it, it morphs into evangelical Christianity and then these people grow up and grow out of it. And this is where you get like the highly conservative people who talk to God. It's like this weird metamorphosis. And I thought it was really fascinating. Religion at all times and in all places is highly syncretic. You'll always have traditions absorbing traits of other traditions. And the evangelical movement is actually a great example mm-hmm. of that. We didn't actually explain what Dharma was because we went on that <laughs> random ass tangent. So tell me, Preston, when I so rudely interrupted with the Dharma and Greg <laughs> So Dharma is the principle of duty. When God says you need to do these things, whichever iteration of the Trimurti it is that's issuing that message, that commandment of how to live or, or what your duty is, is dharma. And so as long as you are um, keeping a balance between... So they and they talk a lot about being true to your dharma and living in your dharma. And it's such a weird term, and you did a good job defining, but we don't really have an equivalent not really. definition. And it's not quite be true to yourself because you might not actually enjoy your dharma. It's sort of accepting your station in life, I guess, is the best way to put it. Oh, for sure. And, and being happy in that. But there is some self-discovery in there, too. It's a really interesting term because it's, you know... We get some wooery here where it's like, be true to yourself and follow your dreams and listen to your inner voice. It's not quite that far. You have a dharma that's imposed on you Absolutely. just by being part of a community. Yeah. But you are also responsible to seek out some sort of communication with the divine to receive a dharma that is specific to you. Mm-hmm. And there is a trick in the balance there that... You can't be doing something and calling it your dharma when it hurts your community because that's super obvious that you're lying. (laughs) Yeah. And again, it's like you might not necessarily like your dharma, but there is like a contentedness that's expected. Absolutely. And that kind of comes back to karma and and going through the samsara cycle. Um, if If you're rebelling against your dharma, you might not come back at a higher level. You might come back at a lower level because you're not, your way of action is not appropriate. So Dharma is an interesting word. I hope we explained it well, but. I think we've covered it in a truthful enough fashion that it's still accessible to our audience. 
So hopefully that helps you feel better about that. Thank you. All right. So Hindu worship isn't overtly wildly different from what we're familiar with here in the West. There's a lot of prayer and reading the books, and that's what you'd expect from the Christian next door. They, yeah, they they chant. They have shrines is a big thing that is a, is different. I mean, we is have, it that different? I Your mean, average Christian household sets up a nativity at Christmas. I guess so. And a that is a shrine. Absolutely, it's a temporary shrine, and I guess that would be the closest equivalent. I mean. Hinduism focuses more on home worship than, like we talked about in the last few weeks, you know, going every Friday or going every Saturday or going every Sunday. You've got your temples that are open all the time. And and you've got home worship. Yeah, and home worship is probably, I mean, the Christians I know do a lot of home worship too, but... um, Especially this year. Right. (laughs) It feels like home worship is, is a bigger emphasis in Hinduism Whereas public worship is more of an emphasis in in the Abrahamic traditions we've talked about. Mm -hmm. Another part of the Hindu tradition is, and this is why I mentioned shrines, is leaving offerings. And sacrifice is actually quite a big part of the Hindu tradition. And, you know, leaving offerings at shrines. For sure. Uh, burning incense is pretty standard. You don't have a whole lot of slaughtering goats. Sacrifices Part of hugely the, important. Or I guess in line with the sacrifice thing, the Hindu creation myth is actually a cosmic sacrifice of the first man. How bad is badass is that? That sounds pretty intense. In the Abrahamic faiths, Adam had a small sacrifice kind of barely where his rib was taken from him forcibly in his sleep. So calling it a sacrifice. I mean, that's as close as we get in the familiar tradition to us that isn't at all parallel. (laughs) Yeah, so in Hinduism, the universe was created by sacrificing the first human. So are you saying that the first human got sacrificed and then Brahman is like, well, I did that. Now the universe is here. Now I have to populate it. I'll try again with the humans. <laughs> yeah, literally they sacrificed this guy and everything came from him. And so from that split, that that cutting of Purusha, man and woman came to be from this androgynous figure rather than trying again to create humanity after killing the only one. And... It even says in the Rig Veda that from his body, the universe was created. So I don't know where they got this first man from, but. He was part of the Brahman. Person. Yes. Part of the Brahman person. It was androgynous. They were androgynous. Yes. And the universe and man and woman came from the sacrifice. All right. So like we've talked about in a few of the previous religions we've discussed, there are dietary restrictions in Hinduism. (laughs) Have you ever noticed that most Hindus are vegetarian? Yes. I actually, and maybe this is because I don't know as many Hindus as other religious groups, but I feel like they are the most true to their dietary restrictions. I don't know any Hindus that waver from them. 
Whereas I do know Jewish and Muslims that do. But that, again, that could just be because of the proportions of people I know. But you're right. They are all vegetarian. So that's actually a uh, behavior that, like others, is encouraged in the Vedas. Hmm. Though it's not outright forbidden to eat meat by all standards, it is encouraged to be a vegetarian, to respect life, that the right way to live is to hurt as few things as possible, which means not killing animals to eat them. I really want to kick you in the shin right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah! I'll show you not hurt. <laughs> I'll get over it. <laughs> Years of therapy will help me. <laughs> um, however, within that suggestion of maybe don't eat a whole lot of meat, there is that strict prohibition from most leaders of the Hindu faith that you should never eat or even hurt by any means a cow. So when you see a cow walking through the streets in a city in India, you move around it. That's the deal. You don't chew it away. You don't kick it to wake it up. You just let it be and hope that nobody else is going to hit it either. <laughs> live and let live. Because the cow is associated with multiple Hindu gods. Yes. And then my note says, lol, they're all just Brahmin. <laughs> <laughs> And it actually, it says it specifically, just like in Islam, in, in the Quran and in the Hebrew Bible, um, for Judaism, it says in the Rig Veda, and another text we didn't touch on the, called the Manushmirti, where it actually says, do not eat cows. Mm -hmm. I don't think it says it like that, but it tells you not to eat cows. Basically, yes. just don't do it. Yeah, summarize. So in their religious text, it says, stay away from cows. Do not put that meat in your mouth. Yep. Yeah, because the cow is considered holy. It's hugely important. One of the most prominent gods to which it's associated is Krishna, as I mentioned before. So the the word that you would describe, that you would use to describe the Hindu dietary restrictions is lacto-vegetarian. It's okay to have milk. The gods did it. We can do it. That's fine. Just don't hurt them. Don't aggressively yank on their nipples. Yeah, okay. I, I think that people have definitely been beaten about a little bit for hurting a cow because cows are slightly more sacred than the average person. Because of your, you know how Canadians don't say T's? We don't pronounce our T's. Toronto, for example. Some T's are more important than others, yeah. Right. I don't know if you're saying hurting or hurting. Like, do you hurting. Hurting. Are you hurt, hurting the cow or hurting the cow? Hurting. Hurting. I still don't know what you're doing. I think when you put enough emphasis on the first syllable, you should expect a T. Whereas if you, if you were a little softer on that first syllable, you'd expect a D. Hurting or hurting. Okay. I don't know. We're hurting cows here. One of those two things is okay to do with cows. The other is not. Actually, even, I, <laughs> even herding cows is a tricky business in India, I think. I think so. Here, not so much, but carry on. Right. All right. So some Hindus will eat lamb or sheep or fish or bird. And I don't think that's the standard, but it's also 
like you're not going to be thrown out of your community for doing so in most cases. And there are some scholars and Hindu authorities who say that there are some parts of scripture that say that eating meat, including beef specifically, <clears throat> in some special cases is encourageable and a good thing to do as an are act they, of worship. Are they Albertan Hindus? <laughs> it sounds that way, doesn't it? <laughs> I, I'm quite confident that there's not very many of them. I, in my research, I heard of two Hindu authorities hmm. out of the many popular. Two of them have said this sort of thing. And they're, I don't think they're really that popular themselves either. <laughs> Okay. But it's an they idea exist. that's out there. But for the most part, lacto-vegetarian. It's okay to have cheese, but you're going to have fun finding different ways to eat salads and mashed potatoes, I guess. Okay. I don't know. When I think of a vegetarian diet, I'm just like, my meal minus meat is sad. <laughs> Everything else we have is just honestly some interesting points but nothing really ties together yeah there's no handy segue unfortunately between every single point in well any religion let's be real <laughs> one one thing location i wanted to mention was actually the ganges river in india it is one it is the one of the one of the holiest places in Hinduism. It is believed to be the manifestation of the goddess Ganja. Ganja. <laughs> Stop making weed jokes. <laughs> no, not not Ganja. Ganja. Gung. Ganja. 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 Oh, or Ganges. Those are your two options. <laughs> Rituals performed at the Ganges River are believed to be purifying or the equivalent of washing away your sins. And there are dozens of festivals held on the banks every year. Many people, I mean, so people bathe themselves there. Many people spread the ashes of their loved ones in there. It is the most polluted body of water in the world because of this. It's supposed to be quite unpleasant. Purifying but. for the spirit. Not but you will body. need to shower afterwards. Yeah. So there's the Ganges. Super important. Um, and actually, I think, quite problematic from an infrastructure point of view for India. Absolutely. So. Um, all rivers are respected as sacred. Moving water is kind of a big deal. But the Ganges is special in itself. And so calling them river folk naming them after Indus, which, of course, is also the name for Big River. Mm -hmm. It's kind of interesting to me, all, as I it, mentioned at the beginning. It all comes full circle, just right. like with the Trimurti. I don't know. Trimurti is a triangle, not a circle. I guess so, but it's a cycle. <laughs> it's just a three-point cycle. Yeah, fair enough. Go. Let's go with that. Okay. I like it. All right. So some a few things that you're probably going to see uh, in your daily life, walking among white folks who have adopted portions of somebody else's religion and their traditions, is yoga. What's yoga? Namaste. <laughs> it is a philosophy. 
You mean it's not just stretching out my legs? No. And did you actually know women were forbidden from doing yoga I for a very long time? definitely not thought about that. Yeah. And it was actually done by, you know, high up Hindu priests, I think even shamans in Hinduism. And women were actually banned from it. And now if you look at who does yoga, it is predominantly women and predominantly white women. So my, how the tables have turned. Now I just remembered a movie. Uh, it's got The Rock in it. I'm pretty sure it was called Faster. And there's the bad guy, beat yoga, I guess. There's a thing he says in the movie where he's just like, yeah, I did all the yoga. I'm so good at it that I mastered every single move. I beat yoga, which is utter nonsense. <laughs> yes. And we've also westernized yoga. When you said beat yoga, I was like, is this a new type of yoga? Like beer yoga or cat yoga or goat yoga or laughing yoga or metal yoga? Um, so we really we've done terrible it. things. We've done horrible things to yoga over here in the West. But yes, it comes from Hinduism. Yeah. Uh, so yoga is the method. That's what the word means is a method. It's the method of gaining mental, spiritual, and physical insight. So meditating, being at rest, is part of yoga. Stretching out your body is part of yoga. Reading is part of yoga. Anything that helps you develop and bring yourself closer to the divine, I guess. Whatever your method is, that is yoga. Mm -hmm. Which is a little different from the way we use it. Kind of like karma. Man, Absolutely. we just abuse everything we take. Right. <laughs> yeah. We are the plague. White people? Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. I mean... We spread the plague. <laughs> that too. Uh, take over the take these next two points, Preston. They were they were yours. I mean, you wrote them down, and I studied you, them. I exactly. <laughs> I just wrote the words. All right. So. so tantra is a another big deal idea in Hinduism. It's the the weave that is life, that is spirituality, and existence everything is woven together being part of a community is that weaving but it's primarily thought of as an esoteric thing the way you connect with people and so if you think about how you relate with people that's part of the weave uh, more famously you've got sting and his ridiculously public <laughs> tantric sex is it an addiction tantric sex practice yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> uh, yeah. So where you're going to see the word tantric the most is in relation to sex. Yeah, big scary. It's dealing with how you connect and weave with your partner. Exactly. <laughs> what you don't see is a finger going through other fingers. <laughs> Because I'm 12. <laughs> uh, and then there's uh, Hindu medicine, which I think is actually really nifty, having done some research on that, that it's broken up into uh, specific fields that more or less uh, are similar to the layers that we would have in medical practices here. And they have fancy names that are far too long for me to stumble my way through them in a 
effective and respectful manner. I'm just going to describe these fields and you can find somewhere where they're written out yourself. So we're looking at what is called Ayurvedic medicine. Uh, so the first, of course, is general medicine, just being a healthy body. Next is pediatrics and midwifery. Midwifery. Yeah. <laughs> and then we've got surgery, the extraction of foreign objects. Mm. We've got treatment of ailments affecting ears, eyes, nose, mouth, the holes in your head. <laughs> Thanks for that. We've got pacification of possessing spirits, also known as exorcisms. Oh, Christ, composing. That's an important part of medicine. I don't know if that idea has morphed into part of dealing with diseases now. Um, a lot of people have thought that way in other traditions. Christianity doesn't deal, mainstream Christianity doesn't deal a whole lot with exorcisms anymore. But instead, it's easy to look at a bacteria being a living thing inside your body could look a lot like a possession of another spirit in your body. So I'm willing to make that leap for those people. <laughs> uh, there's also toxicology. The name for this in, in Hindu is way, way too long for me. <laughs> I, there, there's a reason I don't want to try and say these. They are very there's, long. There's also a whole field dedicated to rejuvenation, uh, increasing your lifespan, intellect, and strength, which I think is pretty cool. There's people that that's their thing. And then, of course, you've got aphrodisiacs and fertility. Associated with that is the idea of sexual spiritual development. In Hinduism, there's loads of different ways that you can worship as long as you are doing something that helps bring you closer to God. And human relationships are definitely a part of that. Sex mm -hmm. is a huge part of, sex, of interpersonal relationships. Mm. So for a lot of Hindu people, many of whom probably just use this argument to validate sexual excess because loads of people of any tradition will find a way to validate sexual excess. There's a basis for that argument in Hinduism. And those are your eight branches of medicine. Wow. Which I think is pretty cool. And you'll have people specialize in each of those. It's pretty pretty rad, Preston. I think so. I think we've covered a lot. We I have. feel like we've talked for a long time. We have talked for a little while. I <laughs> I don't have much to summarize. It's a really big religion with a lot of Moving parts and... And a lot of diversity. Yep. Like you can talk to two people who are way into their faith in, Hindu, in the Hinduist tradition and they can be very different. And if you would say, hey, what about this other guy who does things completely different? They're not likely to have any problem with that, yeah. which is a thing that you don't see a whole lot of in Christianity where there's a lot of infighting yeah. between sect, between traditions yep i it's been a long time since i've looked into hinduism for sure and it was hard to rewrap my head around it during all the research for this episode but i have a newfound newfound refound appreciation for it it's a it's a pretty well-rounded and 
moderate. I mean, every religion has extremes, but it's a pretty well-rounded and moderate and accepting religion. Yeah. And it was nice to refresh my brain on it. And I hope that you learned something too. Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. And seeing how we've syncretized parts of it into a lot of popular Christian traditions is interesting as well. Totally. There was a time when the vast majority of Christians believed in a in God as a person who is present at one place but can be felt around the world. And thanks to basically the baby boomers of the 60s and early 70s adopting these ideas from somewhere else in the world, it's a lot more common to find Christians who believe in a God who is everywhere, permeated through everything. And there are parts of the Bible that encourage that interpretation without outright saying it. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of nifty mm -hmm. that Hinduism has actually had a lot of influence in the world. I think more than people realize. I mean, it's a large religion. There's no way that it wouldn't have that kind of impact. But I think we kind of, yeah, I think people just aren't aware in the West how much we have borrowed and adapted and used for ourselves. Yeah. It's weird to think that it came to India by pale folk. <laughs> it's the whole cycle. Right? It's all come around again. <laughs> I'm making motions with my hands. What a journey we've taken. <laughs> right. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on that journey. Remember, share us with your friends and family. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram. And... If you want to join the conversation, email us at holywatermelonpod at gmail.com. Peace be with you. By the late Middle Ages, the Christian prophecy had fulfilled itself.